We'll start with the simple part. This is episode one of the High Route podcast. The High Route is a new reader-supported website launching September 1st. The High Route will focus on human-powered backcountry riding, the kind where folks make turns on snow. And by the way, I'm Jason Albert, founder and editor of The High Route. Here's the slightly more complex part. So listen up. To find the website, you'll need to know how to type a hyphen, like find it on the keyboard. The website can be found at, and this is all one word. Okay, here we go. The hyphen high hyphen route.com. One more time. The hyphen high hyphen route.com. And hyphen is definitely not spelled out. It's just a dash between the words. We get it. It's not the simplest to type in, but we're not exactly seeking the fly by a website reader anyhow. Our model is pretty simple at the high route. We'll ask for a modest annual subscription fee to access our stories, which if you think about it, is a rather old school model. However, our podcast will be free. We'll be producing two different podcasts, one more general in nature with stories and interviews. That's the one you're listening to right now. The other will be gear focused and hosted by Wilson Wyoming's Gavin Hess. Stay tuned for that. The podcast, they are not free to produce, edit, or store on a server. So if you like the podcast, please consider supporting The High Route. We'd appreciate it. I won't go into all the details now, but The High Route is a group of folks who love the mountains, and they include backcountry skiers and climbers who, as I like to say, do the doing. Unlike me, they're in the mountains more often than anywhere else during their annual trips around the sun. This all brings us to our first guest on the podcast. He is Kaylee Fretz, editor-in-chief of Escape Collective. Kaylee is a former editor of Velo News and Cycling Tips, both of which were purchased in the past by the Outside Media Group and eventually either snuffed out or morphed into something else. As the saying goes, long story short, Kaylee is no longer part of that entity. He helped start the independent, reader-supported Escape Collective, a site dedicated also to cycling. Escape Collective went live in March, and it's an understatement to say Kaylee's vision and risk-taking are inspiring to us. Had we not seen Kaylee quest into the media landscape's unknown terrain, we're unsure we would have taken the risk ourselves. So thank you, Kaylee, and the others at Escape Collective. We think this interview helps serve two purposes. We get some insight into how an outdoor media entity begins and evolves, and listeners also learn more about the DNA of the high route. Like we noted, we were inspired by the Escape Collective's values and energy to make a go of it. Thanks for listening and on to podcast episode one. My name is Kaylee Fretz. I'm the, I guess, co-founder. I'm still not really used to that part. Co-founder and editor-in-chief of Escape Collective, uh, launched March 1st of this year. Uh, Long-time cycling journalist, reporter, worked for Cycling Tips and Vela News back in the day, and yeah, now doing our own thing. 
there's been a lot of shakeup and movement in the outdoor media sort of landscape space for probably a long time, but really in particular, there's been like seismic, notable seismic tremors for maybe four or five years. But I'm curious, how would you describe the evolution from your perspective of outdoor media? Is it an evolution or, or a devolu- devolution or a, a slow disintegration or uh, yeah, outdoor media is a microcosm, right? It's a microcosm of the sort of issues that are that all media are struggling with. I mean, you you take out like the New York Times, which is very much sort of its own beast. And I would say almost every single media company on the planet is worse off now than they were 10 years ago. And so, yeah, outdoor industry, outdoor media falls in that same bucket. Uh, and the sort of the, the ever decreasing value of each individual person in your audience makes it increasingly difficult to uh, to build a media company that that works and that can pay all your employees and and be in any way profitable and do things that are com- that a company is supposed to do right. Um, and so then the quality of of the media goes down because there's less there's less money and there's less uh, yeah everyone's just a bit less flush and. Makes it harder to be creative and innovative when you don't have any cash, and here we are. <laughs> Everything's sort of getting bundled up and unbundled and bundled up and unbundled, and and it's just been a bad. It's been a bad decade. Been a bad two decades probably, but I only have the last decade of personal experience. So, how have you seen like content in particular, and the content that you were once asked to produce, say when you first started out at Velo News, and I think you were at Velo News first way back. Yeah, I was an intern there, actually, way back in like 2010. Based out of Boulder? Yep, yep. Yeah, what type of content you were responsible for generating and how that sort of changed up until, you know, you started Escape Collective, which is certainly a different model. I have a very different perspective on my early years now than I used to uh, because I now, I guess I've seen behind the curtain a little bit more and and I've seen... Um, the things required to make a media business work. Whereas when I was 22 years old and, and starting off at Vela News and, you know, I was just, I was sent to a bicycle race and I was, and I was told to make content out of that bicycle race and do reporting and talk to riders and talk to directors and come back with interesting stories. And, and that was sort of the extent of, of my remit at that point. Um, and I can't say that I, I thought that much beyond that other than, um, you know, okay, well, I'm supposed to write back then, you know, <laughs> two to five stories a day, for example, from the Tour de France. And how do I do that? How do I, how do I find those stories? How do I get them out as quickly and efficiently as, as possible? As things sort of progressed in the last 10 years, I would say the sort of, I, I think the overarching theme is basically media companies trying to figure out what on earth people like me, like the reporters, should be doing. Because they actually didn't know a lot of the time. Uh, they, nobody could really figure out how to make any money anymore, right? So do, do we go for a volume play? Do we need to write as many stories as humanly possible? Do we need to go deeper? Do we need to you know, drop the quantity and up the quality? And, and I feel like over the course of my, of my sort of journalism career, I, we got pulled back and forth and back and forth there over and over again because frankly like the people over our heads just weren't sure because it wasn't clear and, and everyone's just sort of throwing things at the wall and trying to see what would happen and so you know it kind of shifted into like 
my early Vela News days, we, we have to say the magazine, uh, Vela News magazine existed up until 18 months ago or so. Um, and, you know, should the internet just be an, an online version of our magazine? Should it be these big, deep reported pieces that are 3,000 words long? Or do we need to shift and try to chase cycling news around and, and go for the high volume play? And I, it was just sort of all over the place for the last the last decade and um i don't really fault anybody for that like if i had been in 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 the position of my superiors at that point uh i think i would have been doing the same thing just again like chucking stuff at the wall because the fundamentally the models were the were what was shifting underneath them and um the way that that sort of money came into media was was shifting underneath everybody and everyone was just trying to shift themselves to match right you're, you're chasing things around you're your oh facebook video views are through the roof okay we're pivoting to video we're, we're making facebook videos now oh facebook video views were total bullshit and they were lying i guess we're unpivoting to video and we're going back toward written word it was that sort of thing for the last decade it's just media companies chasing their tails trying to figure out where the money was going to come from to pay these people that they had on payroll, you know, to, to cover the costs of, of running a business in this space. And, and yeah, unfortunately that the sort of some of the individuals that probably suffered the most from that were the ones that were just trying to make stuff and, and, and trying to make good stuff. And, uh, yeah, that's that, that, that was the core of my frustrations over the last decade have all been, have all basically come back to that is, is an, uh, uh, no one sort of fully explaining why on earth I was doing any of the things that, that I was being asked to do. Uh, and yeah, me not necessarily because I had a full-time job making stuff, not really having the bandwidth to go figure it out by myself. So, yeah. I guess behind the scenes a little bit and looking at metrics, was readership, you know, specifically in cycling media, and I'm thinking of like, I'm dating myself, but that huge boom with Lance Armstrong, where it was like, Graham, you know, I'm sure my grandmother was watching the tour. Probably. Um, <laughs> maybe. But anyway, what was what were readership numbers like? Were they fairly steady state? So I, I came into Velenus at sort of the end of the Lance era. I actually came at the sort of Lance 2.0, if you recall, when he came back. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so I, I've, I, cover, I covered a bit of that. Um, so I wasn't around in, in kind of the you know, 2000, 2000, 99 to 2005 peak, peak Lance stuff. Um, my guess is the numbers were actually higher in 2010 than they were earlier because the, the methods of distribution on the internet were better. Um, you know, Facebook was becoming a thing. Uh, that was a mean social media was becoming a means of spreading your content around, uh, media companies were better understanding Google and SEO and, and how to, how to use those distribution channels. Um, and so a big part of those early days was just figuring out how to, yeah, how to use those channels. How do you, how do you use, how do you use Facebook to get, to get, the word out about your Lance Armstrong story that doesn't just go to the same group of people anymore. Yeah. And then, and then you end up with this, uh, with this situation where suddenly these algorithms and, and we're kind of talking kind of mid, mid 2010s here. Suddenly, suddenly these algorithms were the best way to get your content in front of people. Um, and we ended up with this explosion of, of traffic all over the place, right? Uh, not only in the cycling space, but sort of, you can go all the way to like BuzzFeed because suddenly Facebook in particular 
uh, and, and Google were sort of this way to put your, your content in front of this massive group of people that probably didn't have a good way to find you otherwise. So sort of the discovery mechanism of Facebook and the discovery mechanism of SEO were this incredibly powerful tool that was used a lot in those 2010s to take, you know, kind of reasonable viewership numbers and just, you know, 100x multiply them, right? Uh, you know, back in the day, like a, a good, uh, I, th- I think the Vela News subscriber list for the print product was, was I think when I first started, there was like 30,000 or something like that. Um, 20,000, I can't remember exactly, wow. but it was like in the tens of thousands, right? And then you go over to to the internet and all of a sudden, you know, a page views number, a monthly page views number of less than a couple million was small. And so the, the entire, the, the sort of like, <laughs> this is the wrong use of this term, but like the Overton window of page, of, of, of audience size shifted, right? And all of a sudden 30,000 in a print product was, was like, well, who, who wants to talk to 30,000 people? You've got, you've got 30 million on this side. And so it kind of shifted this, the media attention toward these other distribution methods, again, Google and Facebook and things like that, and, and these massive, massive numbers that were essentially built off the back of algorithms controlled by other companies. At the end of, of the sort of, well, basically, like since the pandemic, uh, one of the things that has happened is a lot of those algorithms have started to shift and all these companies realize that they built businesses on the back of somebody else's algorithm that they have no control over. And BuzzFeed News has shut down because they can't get the distribution via Facebook that they used to get. And there's there's a million examples of this. And, and so I think that like from a from just a pure numbers perspective, the peak for most media was probably somewhere in the like late 2010s when Facebook was doing its thing and Google was doing its thing. And if you weren't getting millions and millions of page views, you were failing miserably. Whereas now getting those sort of like free eyeballs even if they weren't actually worth very much, uh, they were at least a big number you could sell. Getting those free eyeballs is, is getting a lot more difficult. You know, Google search is about to change, most likely. Uh, AI is about to do things to it that we can't really predict at this point. Facebook has shut off the the fire hose, right? Like you cannot get the traffic out of Facebook that you could get three years ago. You absolutely cannot mm-hmm. do it, particularly if you're not willing to pay for it. Uh, so all these things have kind of shifted and I think it's kind of re, um, it's kind of recentering media around their actual audience size, right? As opposed to just all these kind of flybys that that Facebook and, and Google would provide. And and I think what I have was happening and what I hope is kind of happening is a lot of media is recentering on the people that actually care about them. Uh, as I say to to the escape crew on a pretty regular basis, like our job is to build a website that people come to on purpose, not a website that people end up on accidentally. Because with our model, people that show up accidentally are probably just going to leave and we didn't make a cent off of them because we don't monetize those flybys. We're looking for people that find us, love us, and then stick around. That's a very different, uh, it's a very different model. It's a very different way to think about the, the content that you're producing. Yeah, so it it becomes kind of at least the way I took it was kind of this existential question, you know, about the outdoor media landscape and obviously the media landscape at large. Um, you know, where there was this 
real clear shift a while ago, I suppose, where it was about capturing eyeballs and, and capturing people's wallets. And, you know, the outdoor industry includes us consumers that spend a ton of money on things like gear. So that said, there, there's, as I noted, there's been the shift in the kind of content or most of the content that's put out there. And there's just a ton of noise. So, so I, I think, I think one of the things, sorry, I just did when we, when we make podcasts and we stick our hand up yeah. when I'm about to talk. So I just did that like automatically. That's uh, good. Sorry. No, I need to get back in the groove. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that happened, so, so, so what I was just talking about and sort of like this, this peak of numbers, right, at the, at the end of the 2010s, uh, basically like just pre-pandemic, the peak of the numbers right there, as things started to fall off and as Facebook turned off the fire hose of, of traffic and as Google got kind of harder to game, um, I think one of the things that happened was publishers that didn't understand where their where their true value lay, they started pulling out all the stops, trying to trying to still hit those old numbers, right? Which was actually, it was a distribution problem. It wasn't a content problem. And so the content was shifting toward this like higher volume, you know, basically get worse and worse and worse in an effort to just get more and more eyeballs in. Uh, lower quality eyeballs, I would argue, but also just lower quality content. Uh, and it was basically a reaction to the fact that, yeah, they, they couldn't just, they couldn't just chuck things on Facebook and get, and get hundreds of thousands of people to show up every single month, um, you know, on one story. I, I think Buzzfeed at one point was literally doing billions of page views, right? That was off the back. It wasn't. It wasn't off the back of people typing in BuzzFeed.com, right? It was entirely off the back right. of people coming in via Facebook and Google. And so, those algorithms shift, and that company is hosed. And that's exactly what what ended up happening. Uh, but the the end result for people on the ground, like people like you and me, is that is that we were being asked to try to hit these same numbers as we were hitting before. Uh, and kind of the only way to do it was this really high volume, low quality approach, and that became increasingly um, difficult to, to swallow, really uh, difficult to, to want to go into work and, and do every day. Um, but the sort of like the Mac, the macro effects that were causing these micro uh, issues are, are, are real and profound and haven't changed. Right. Like, uh, but I do think that it's also why, you know, you and I are sitting here, uh, both of us either, either about to, or already have, thought through, through things a bit differently and are trying to do something that is a better match for today's media landscape, basically. That's the interesting question, right? It's like, I, and we can, and I think this is a good transition to like specifically what you're doing at escape is I keep on sort of my internal dialogue and this is good for me. Cause I, I was like part of one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you was like, I need to flesh this out a little bit, right? Yeah, so part of my internal dialogue is, has the media landscape changed? It seems like Kaylee's experiment with the Escape Collective and, and, and the other folks that you've brought on board, obviously Wade, James, you know, names that folks recognize from cycling writing has been, it's got legs and it's got strong legs. Yeah, it's got legs. I don't know if it has a torso yet, but it's it's like some legs running around. That's for sure. Uh, it's got a brain. Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to oversell or undersell it, right? Which is like, um, you know, 
media is still really hard. Like that, that is, that is the reality is it's, it's a very difficult business. It's a, it's, you're trying to convince people to pay for something that they haven't paid before before, or you're selling them in an ad market that is, that is very poor at the moment. Uh, either one of those tactics is going to be a difficult place to be. That said, yeah, we, we were, uh, we were sort of, a, I, I guess, not shocked, but very pleased <laughs> with the sort of reaction upon our launch in March. Um, you know, we don't release we don't release membership numbers publicly, but it was many many thousands of people signed up. Um, annual memberships at first, so you know, hundred bucks a pop, right? And it got us to the point where, yeah, we do we have legs. We can we can continue forward, and and um, you know, we're not we're not profitable yet. But we are on a trajectory that points us in that direction, and we think we'll get there before we run out of money. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that that that's that's essentially where we are right now. And, uh, but yeah, again, I don't want to I don't want to undersell or oversell it. And that and that it's not like I don't think that our model is some some kind of silver bullet either. I just think it's sure. a, I just think it's a better match for what people are looking for right now, and a better match for what our whole crew was interested in doing. And that is a big part of it as well is just, you know, it's been, it's been kind of, it's been not a, not a great place to work in media for the last like 10 years. Um, because you're just kind of like getting bounced around and you're getting laid off and you're, you know, it's almost like getting laid off is almost like a, like a rite of passage at this point. Right. It's like, like who, who in this, who in this line of work hasn't at least once in the last 10, 15 years, if you've been at this a while, you probably laid off at least once. And so it's been kind of a rough place to work. And, and so building something that is sort of like employee first, uh, and is all about like the whole pitch is that we write the things that we want to read and we find are interesting. That's you almost work backwards from there. And like, how do you make a, a model work while making it uh, an enjoyable place for us to to do our thing? Yeah, take a step back just slightly. How would you describe the Escape Collective model? Uh, well, at the moment, we are a one hundred percent membership and subscription funded media entity. Um, I say membership and subscription because those two things are different in our, in our heads. Uh, and I say at the moment, because frankly, I don't think we will, I, th I think that ads are in our future uh, in some form or another. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. One, uh, you know, I don't think you can grow at some point you sort of plateau with the number of people that you're going to get to give you cash. And, um, the other thing is that like, I don't think all advertising is just terrible and is like the end of media. I just think a lot of it is, <laughs> I think. And I think it mostly comes down to doing it properly and to, you know, uh, not being sort of purposefully annoying as part of the advertising strategy. Uh, so yeah, at the moment we're, we're hundred percent member and subscriber funded. Um, our, our whole thing is, you know, sort of a collection of podcasts, uh, a website, with a metered paywall. So you get a certain number of stories free and then at some point you do have to pay up. Um, and then we're moving into things like email, uh, newsletters, and so other ways to, to reach people where they are and to provide value to our audience. And, and that's the model. The model is to, is to provide enough value to the audience that they are willing to, to give us money <laughs> just like any other product right uh you know distilled yeah. as far as we possibly can the model is to sell our content 
to the people actually consuming it instead of selling the people consuming our content to to advertisers. That that's the fundamental model. Um, and we even like I said, even if we at add advertising at some point, which I think we probably will. The big deal for us is to kind of keep the the ratio between those two revenue streams uh, at a place where we're very comfortable with it. So what we don't ever want to get to is a place where we are advertising reliant, where if we lose a big advertiser, it is, you know, potential layoffs for staff or, or other major issues, right? We want to be primarily funded by our audience uh, and then essentially use advertising revenue to, to grow and to cover additional areas that we wouldn't have been otherwise been able to cover and, and just improve the product. That's the, that's the, essentially the, the strategy around, um, our various revenue streams at this point. Look, I'm learning here. I got my hand up. <laughs> so my question is you've seen a lot of different advertising models, right? What feels like a good landing spot for the escape collective in terms of advertising? I think if we start, I, I think the, the the absolute cap, um, and this is just sort of like finger in the air math, right? Like back in the napkin math, <laughs> the absolute cap for us is probably something in the neighborhood of like 15, 20% of our revenue is advertising. Um, because that's a nice number to ba- basically, like if we can cover our costs with our, our like hard costs with memberships and, and subscription, if we're making an, an additional... 15, 20%, that allows us to grow. So for example, like we, we really want to get sort of hardcore into cross country mountain biking next year. And to do that, we either need to get a whole bunch of new members, but they haven't actually seen the content yet. So that's going to be a bit difficult. Or we use a bit of advertising funding to sort of get ahead of ourselves and, and start to produce that content. So, uh, that's that's sort of my like my my rough guess. Uh, I don't know exactly where those numbers will end up. And, and again, at the moment, it's it's one hundred percent zero. So we're going to start really really small. Um, I have seen a lot of advertising models over the years, and and I'm certainly no like I'm not a sales guy. I'm not a. I'm, that's, that's the other reason why. <laughs> Uh, we're not doing a lot of advertising right now. Is we literally don't have a salesperson. Uh, so. Yeah, I think that the thing that we will avoid is ads that are annoying, like big flashy banner ads, things that stick on your page, all that stuff is just, it makes the user experience an absolute nightmare. Uh, You know, I I I don't want to mention any of our sort of cycling world competitors directly, but I think anybody who consumes a lot of cycling media will know exactly who I'm talking about. It's like there's, there's a lot of sites you open up and and particularly on a phone, which is where 70 plus percent of people are, are currently reading. There's just there's like a dime size space for the, the actual content you're reading and everything else is, is just flashy ads and videos that stick and when you're scrolling and all this sort of like annoying stuff because essentially because the the publishers have kind of had to do that to make enough cash to keep the thing afloat we we don't want to go anywhere near that we like i i absolutely hate that sort of thing the user experience is terrible so i think when we do ads it'll be things like we'll work them into our podcasts we will work them into potentially like email newsletters we'll 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 do them in ways where you know i think that they'll provide a lot of value for the advertiser but they also won't the the point won't be to like annoy the end user the the reader the audience into like accidentally clicking on something or or having to 
get something out of the way to actually read their story. There's there's so much room in between the kind of like hyper annoying ad model and the no ads at all model to to play in that I'm not really that worried about the I'm not really worried about finding the line there for us because at, at the end of the day we're going to we're going to make sure that we still that it's still a product that we would want to consume. So yeah, not too worried about that one. The whole idea of getting a person who you don't have a relationship with per se, right? There were like the cycling tip devotees or the Kaylee devotees, right? Which is awesome. And you guys had a very solid product, but a person that you're trying to get to, to subscribe and they're 100% not used to subscribing for much. I mean, I always ask people, what do you read? And then more specifically, what do you, do you subscribe to? Because it gives me some insight into their consumer choices, what they are, or what they are not willing to pay for. But I'm curious from your perspective, like what has that conversation been like for you? Or do you even engage in the conversation of like, hey, if you believe in our product or any product that's written, for example, you should probably pay for it. Yeah, I, I, so we actually recently did a reader survey, and and support for independent media was was a pretty strong. Uh, it was it was a large reason why people have signed up to to escape is they like the idea of of yeah putting their money into something that is working for them basically because that's what we're doing like. Right? You you work for whoever pays you, <laughs> right? And 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 that's the sort of fundamental reality of a lot of sort of the media world is is you know if, if the bike industry pays you, end of the day you work for the bike industry. You might you might tell yourself that you work for readers. I mean, we always did at Cycling Tips. Um, I think we did a pretty good job of of sort of towing that line. But at the end of the day, when the shoe really drops, you have one boss, right? And it's and it's whoever's keeping your lights on. And for us, that's the audience. And that is massively, massively freeing. And they know that. And so having that conversation with people is actually quite easy because that's something that people understand, I think, immediately is the fact that, okay, if, if I give you if I give you my $100, like, you, you kind of work for me. You work for thousands and thousands of other people too. So it's not like I can just come in and demand that I want a story about something. You know, we're going to work for the for what our, the majority of our audience is, is looking for. But at the end of the day, that sort of consumer sentiment is really what guides our our whole sort of content strategy and editorial product. And that's a pitch that makes sense to people. So I think it makes sense to readers. Uh, so yeah, it, it works. It, it works quite well. We, we use that pitch, I think, most often probably in our podcast, basically saying you know, our podcasts are all free, for example. There's no paywall. Um We'll probably add kind of special episodes, paywalled episodes down the line. But the moment everything is free and and you know, it's 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 almost like an NPR model. You know, if if you like this, mm-hmm. support it kind of thing, uh, and that works incredibly well. Like a, a massive portion of our of our sort of total membership identified podcasts, which again are they can get for free, as the primary reason for them to sign up. Uh, actually, almost more than the website content which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there, there's no, we haven't forced any of those people to sign up. They could get the podcast for free, whether they pay or not, but they choose to pay because they understand that if they like this product and they want it to continue to exist, 
they need to they need to pony up uh yeah so it's not a hard pitch it's there are there is a certain segment of people who will never do it who will never hit purchase right and we know that and that 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 is sort of the one of the fundamental difficulties of the of the model but there are also a lot of people out there who are willing to do so and sort of understand and and appreciate uh, their role in this sort of like ecosystem right Here's actually a really, for me, it's an interesting question because it, it also speaks to the sort of who are you working for? And in the past models I've worked for, you know, there's been advertising or there's been an owner who that who then could drive affiliate links to their particular place that's selling goods. But I honestly like never felt like, oh, I owe anything anything and there I felt very lucky that there was no overt there was no overt pressure to like hey review this or give this a thumbs up so how do you navigate that now with companies with you obviously need to get product uh, you know paying for a bike to test if you're purchasing it could be I've listened to your podcast you know and I think one of you was like yeah it's not that expensive it's five thousand dollars I was like that's the bike industry right like things are pricey but um, yep. yeah, how do you guys navigate that? And I suppose maybe that's a question for James, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we, I, I can only think of one example at the moment where we've been not invited to some launches recently. Um, and I don't really know why, <laughs> like other than, other than we were honest about some things and, and uh, there, there's maybe a bit of a, a relationship breakdown there, but um you know, those relationships are important to us too. Like we, we, we have no interest in, in just like shitting all over the bike industry left, right, and center. They make pretty good stuff most of the time and we're happy to talk about it. And yeah, them providing product is, is a huge deal. It's very mm-hmm. important to us. Uh, you know, it's not some, it's not some nefarious thing, right? It's, it's, uh, and again, like to sort of return back to, to the model thing and like i felt the same way at cycling tips which is that we very very rarely got any sort of significant amount of um you know you need to be nice to xyz brand kind of thing it was very rare and generally we were able to push back on it and and not do whatever we wanted anyway but that tension still existed for sure that tension is now gone and i I would say that most of the industry particularly when we first launched like I, i heard from all all sort of corners of the industry people very happy for what we were doing, very supportive of it. Um, a lot of the industry is not really sure how to deal with us. Like I had a lot of conversations with PR people and, and marketing people being like, so what do we do with you now? Like if, if we're not going to do ads, uh, how, like how do we get into escape collective? I'm like, well, you, you pitch us on the, on the, on the product. <laughs> and if the tech team wants to deal with it, then they will deal with it. And, and, that's basically the the extent of it. And so I, I think that, you know, we haven't had any sort of real, I don't think we've had any real issues with with the industry in any way. And, and, I, and I would hope that that continues because, yeah, there's a huge amount of mutual respect there. And, and uh, yeah, they've certainly lost a bit of leverage against us, but that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point of the model. So, you know, I'm sort of willing to take that. And I think that the companies that are, ruining the loss of that leverage are probably not ones that we wanted to deal with all that much anyway, right? Like if, if they don't get what we're doing and they don't get the importance of it to the people that they're trying to sell bikes to, 
then I'm not sure how I can how I can get that across at this point. That like I, I think it's it's quite self-explanatory. I think that you know having an entity in in cycling that is quite obviously not beholden to anybody but a consumer is a good thing and i think if you're a, if you're a company that is proud of your product and stands behind your product you should probably be excited about that because if we say good things it's like a consumer reports thing if we say good things about your product there is no question that that comes from a place of absolute honesty uh, and the reality even though you and I are, are, are both sitting here saying, well, we, you know, we, we didn't get that much pressure when we were working under ad models. The reality in the bike industry is that that pressure does exist, most, I would say, elsewhere. Uh, and regardless of, of what's actually happening behind the scenes, there is a massive perception problem with the audience. Huge portions of the audience, of, of cycling fans, people, people reading cycling reviews, bike reviews, don't trust what media is telling them. There's a reason for that. It's because they've been lied to a bunch of different times. And it doesn't take many times for, it doesn't take many lies before that trust is essentially broken down and it takes a really long time to build again. So if I was a, if I was a bike brand, I would be, I think, pleased to have a, a media entity that was starting from a different place and for whom there was no, there were no questions of trust, right? Uh, we're trying to rebuild a trust that has been broken over the last 20 years by you know unscrupulous uh media titles selling editorial and selling reviews and like these things do happen and whether or not you and i ever had to deal with that is is largely irrelevant because the audience believes that they happen and and as a result questions everything so yeah i i i, I kind of went on a bit of a tangent there but i, I think that that's <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's how I feel. That's how I feel about about the sort of the, the relationship between us and the industry is that I, I hope they understand that if we are successful, it's good for them. That that's the yes, you can't yet you can't dangle half a million dollars in front of my face anymore and, and hope that I'll that I'll review all of your bikes. But but if your bikes are good, we're gonna review your bikes. <laughs> so and 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 hopefully the audience will understand enough about the way that we do things that they will know that uh that those reviews are are, are valid um that combined with the sort of long history that, that dave rome and, and james have and and the incredible uh sort of i guess reputation that ronan has built for himself in a very short amount of time i think that those things in, in combination make for a pretty pretty powerful sort of tech department uh and yeah like that that's that can only be good for, for anybody making good products, right? In, yeah, and readers. I mean, it's just yeah. yeah, it's like yeah, it's like a it shouldn't be a breath of fresh air, but it's like <laughs> oh ah. Um, okay, last question: relationship at Escape Collective with Best of. Hmm, we've talked about this internally a little bit. Um, I mean, okay, so here you pull back the curtain a little bit, right? Uh, so we, <laughs> one of the things that I think every single sales director I have ever worked with has asked for is end of year, like awards, right? Uh, that isn't to say that we don't 
from an editorial perspective, also think awards are great. We like giving out awards. Like it's one, it's kind of fun to do. Two, it's, it can often be great content. Like it's, it can be entertaining, particularly if it's really opinionated. Like we often do these things via, via podcast, for example. Um, those can be great shows where we, where we, where we do awards. Uh, now the, the sort of sales director version of this is no, 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 no. I want like the top 10 somethings in XYZ category, because every single time you mention one of those brands, we're going to go to them or we're going to try to sell, right? Uh, so I don't have that anymore. I don't have a sales director, first and foremost. Uh, I don't have anybody asking me for best of lists, and I don't have anybody... Uh, we don't do affiliate, and so I would say a huge portion of best of lists these days are just affiliate lists. Um now, depending on the on the title, those are either total bullshit and are literally just a list of links that make the company money, or they're real. And and the problem is, if you make the real ones, the audience has very little way of telling the difference, and so you're kind of dragged down by the bullshit ones, right? Uh, we don't do affiliate. We don't so we don't have any sort of like financial reason to do best of lists. We don't we don't have any. The only reason we would have to do best of lists is if we think it's really good content and. We probably will. Like, we'll probably get to the end of the year and we'll probably do a bunch of awards. And part of that is because we're all going to go on vacation over Christmas and we need some content to put up that week. And awards are great <laughs> for that particular type of thing. Uh, but the reason won't be because we need to we need to squeeze XYZ bike brand in uh, in the middle of sales season. So that's nice. I don't I don't I don't miss that. Yeah, and the underlying vibe there is less, for me at least, a little less cynical and less SEO driven than like, hey, here's some stuff that we believe in. We liked it. Yeah, I mean, like, so to to like to be blunt, like SEO is not that important to us, and 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 social isn't that important to us. Um, one because social distribution is broken. Uh, Facebook doesn't help anymore. Two, because SEO is probably about to shift dramatically. Um, and three, because like I said, flybys, people that show up on a best of list and read it once and never come back, those people are not useful to me. They're never going to give me $100 to read that one thing. So uh, yeah, we, we don't have... We, it, our only SEO concerns are just with sort of like overall growth. How do we pull in... How do we help, how do we help people find us that might be really into what we're doing? And from that perspective, yeah, it's still important. But like... It, the SEO of an individual piece of content, making sure that it ranks really high so that we can get affiliate links high up in a, in a Google uh, response to make 0.02 cents off of every single one of the people that come across. Um, that That's not something we do. So it's not something we have to worry about, <laughs> which again, is kind of freeing. The, 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 be the best thing about the model that we have chosen is how freeing it is from an editorial perspective that's just that it comes back basically back down to that and i think that that makes for better content which means that we have a higher likelihood of being able to sell that content to our actual consumers which are the audience so it's a nice little it's a nice little 360 it, it, it works it works in lots of different ways and where can folks find you escapecollective.com you can throw a slash join in there if you just want to uh sign right up <laughs> um yeah, we've got we've got you know we've got monthly billing. We can do annual billing. We have two different tiers. Um, 
One is a membership tier, so that gets you access to like a, a private Discord where you can go ask questions of, of James and Dave Rome and you can talk about bike racing, you can chat about the podcast and things like that. Uh, and then there's a second tier that is just called a reader and that basically just drops the paywall on the site. So if all you do is you want to read stuff on the site every once in a while, that's a bit cheaper. You can just drop the paywall with that that reader version. Um, yeah, head on over. We're, we're, we're doing our best to make stuff that people like. That's... Uh, that's the task every single day. Awesome. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was great. Good chat. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, folks, for listening. And please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and head over to thehighroute.com. You got to remember those hyphens to learn more about what we're up to and how you can be involved. And if you have an interesting story for us, head over to the contact page at The High Route and send us an email. Lastly, the theme music you've heard comes from Albuquerque-based band Storms in the Hill Country from their album The Self-Transforming. We'll link to it on the website and the show notes. Onward and upward. Pay attention to sounds Pay attention to your dreams Pay attention to what's all around And everything that's in between And I see my beauty in you I become the mirror that can't close its eyes I see my beauty in you I become